Hello, this is Doug Wyatt. I want to welcome you to our podcast series, Considering Christianity as a Scientist, and this is podcast number 23. Podcast 22 was part one of a three-podcast series on blending our lives as a scientist and a Christian. This podcast continues our discussion as part two, and we will end with podcast 24, which is part three of our series. As a reminder, I am a Ph.D. scientist, published in with patents, and a long history of managing major science and engineering research programs. I am a Christian. With many of my friends in science, technology, and engineering, I have chatted with and discussed our thoughts on Christ and Christianity, the Creator God, the Bible and human history, and often how difficult it is to reconcile belief with our scientific training and thought processes. I truly understand and have struggled with this myself. Science and Christian beliefs are often hard to merge in our modern technological and skeptical world. Yet I know that many feel, sense, hear, a quiet whisper, a deep sensed need for something greater, larger, and more meaningful than ourselves. I want you to consider and to discuss through our podcast that this is our Creator God calling to you personally and how to accept this. I offer this series of podcasts as a scientist and a Christian consideration of Christianity as a scientist. In this podcast, we want to discuss and to consider how to live as a Christian while being a scientist. I have friends, good friends and colleagues, who say that this is impossible. Our conversations are always interesting and meaningful. I believe that it is, in many ways, a very complementary coexistence. First, just like going through the decision process to become a scientist by getting the training, studying, and awarded a degree, we must also decide to go through the process to become a Christian where we believe enough to follow the process to be baptized and accept the concepts of Jesus as our Savior. Please don't think this statement is flippant or that I believe that becoming a scientist is in any way equivalent to deciding to follow Christ. But I am talking with you as a scientific thinker and want to discuss the process as an allegory to what you already do, so you can also break down your intellectual barriers to become a Christian. Once you get to the point to decide... Just like deciding to become a scientist, you do not need to know everything, nor do you know everything. But in both cases, as a scientist and a developing Christian, we learn and grow. It took self-reflection, study, thought and evaluation, maybe advice, then dedication to decide on science. The absolute same is required to become a Christian with the addition of expanding your view to include your heart, soul and mind. Christianity is not something you can halfway or partway choose. You cannot change your Christianity like changing your career. It is more important than that. Remember the statement of Jesus as our original premise. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, the first part of the process of being a scientist, becoming a Christian and follower of Christ, and living as a scientist and a Christian. As mentioned earlier, there are some things you have to believe, understand, and accept. However, being willing to listen to, read, and study the teaching, life, and sacrifice of Jesus, accept Jesus as he requested, 
and feeling the need and willingness to understand what he did and the benefits of Christ to humankind is, is first. Quite simply, to begin, you need to accept God as we have mentioned and then be willing and open to giving Christianity consideration. This is very often the hardest part for a scientist, just giving a non-stochastic, non-parametric, non-XY process of thought. However, I can argue and have experienced that Christianity can certainly be observed, even somewhat measured. Thinking back to our last podcast, part one of this three-part series, let's think about the question, why Jesus? Gospel of John, Jesus is recorded as saying some very remarkable things. In a meeting and discussion, also a teaching session with his disciples, right before his betrayal and death, Jesus said to his disciples in chapter 14, I will read these and add a few running comments. Here we go. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Remember Thomas? He is responsible for the common term doubting Thomas often used. He questioned Jesus on several things. He needed explanation and data. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered. I can see him looking straight at Thomas with sort of a loving, quizzical, sympathetic grin. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Philip was one who needed observational proof. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus told Philip to believe in his observational truth. Very well, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatsoever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him. This is the Spirit of Truth. We all know how truth is often not accepted. Because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. 
On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands will keep them and is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, this is not Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. And note, the Bible specifically included the pre, that previous parenthetical that this Judas was not the one who betrayed him. He could be a brother of Jesus or another Judas who was a follower. Continuing, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. Jesus is referring to Satan, Hasatan, Beelzebub, the evil one, as this prince. Continuing, He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. These are remarkable statements. Very, very powerful. Very matter-of-fact. Maybe strange to the ears of a scientist, to anybody, but remarkable nonetheless. What does this really mean? For Jesus, is this just hubris on his part? Is he crazy? Insane? Or is he who he says he is? It has to be one of these three potential choices. Hubris, madness, or son of God. This is the famous Christian historical trilemma. Remember, a trilemma has three potential endpoints versus the usual dilemma with only two. Let us consider C.S. Lewis. He was an Oxford medieval literature scholar and popular writer. He was also a Christian apologist, becoming a believer in Christian after being a vocal former atheist. Lewis used an argument in a series of BBC radio talks that he then published in his book, Mere Christianity. If you have not read it, you should, even as a scientist. As part of the interview, then later in his book, Lewis says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
Now it seems to me obvious that he was a neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. As a scientist, we can understand this sentiment and this conclusion. It is an obvious extrapolation, especially given a history of the results of Jesus himself. We discussed these in our earlier podcasts. I am quoting others in these next few sentences who have summarized better than myself and quite frankly lost my reference notes, but fully admit that these thoughts are from others. Lewis, who had spoken extensively on Christianity to Royal Air Force personnel, was aware many ordinary people did not believe Jesus was God, but saw him rather as a great human teacher, who was deified by his supporters. Lewis's argument is intended to overcome this. It is based on a traditional assumption that, in his words and deeds, Jesus was asserting a claim to be God. For example, in Mere Christianity, Lewis refers to what he says are Jesus' claims, to have authority to forgive sins, behaving as if he really was the person chiefly offended in all offenses, to have always existed, and to intend to come back to judge the world at the end time. Jesus claimed all of these things. Lewis implied that these amount to a claim to be God and argues that they logically exclude the possibility that Jesus was merely a great moral teacher because he believes no ordinary human making such claims could possibly be rationally or morally reliable. This is similar to an earlier version of the argument used by Henry Perry Lydon in 1866, paraphrasing Lydon with a few words of my own included. Think about this. This deduction is quite logical. I believe that this simple logic exercise, when mingled with a deep desire to believe and a feeling of the need for something greater than ourselves, can help a scientific thinker accept Christianity. Think about the best of Christianity. A bad man, a crazy man, what Lydon states as the alt deus alt malus homo, could not have created the great concepts, the great beliefs we have from Jesus. He was who he claimed to be, and the proof is, literally, history. I need to read more about Henry Lytton. Just a few more words on Jesus being who he says he is. The discussion, the argument we just reviewed, has been used in numerous forms and circumstances throughout recent Christian history. It was used by the American preacher Mark Hopkins in his 1846 book, Lectures on the Evidence of Christianity as based on lectures he delivered in 1844. A Scots preacher nicknamed Rabbi John Duncan, who lived from 1796 to 1870 and was preaching around 1859-1860, used the argument. Church notables such as N.P. Williams, Reuben Archer Torrey, and W.E. Biderwolf used this same logical trilemma argument. For me, in truth, Biterwolf is the only one I have scanned in my studies. An author whom I have also scanned and read, G.K. Chesterton, used something similar to the trilemma in his book, The Everlasting Man, in 1925, which Lewis cited in 1962 as the second book that influenced him most. I need to pull that book out again. If Jesus was not real, or who he said he was, then he must have been crazy unto death. And apparently those who knew him and those who learned his teaching believed 
and now number in the billions. The proof is in the pudding, as they say. Since we have reason that Jesus was who he said he was, then it follows that if all that was recorded about him and has survived the proof of history and reason, and that faith is required, then what he taught about what God was seeking for our lives is what is expected. This is an if and given then sort of statement. To me, very Bayesian. Let's end part two here and consider what we have discussed. Part three starts our understanding of how Jesus expects a Christian as a scientist to live. Thank you for listening to this part two episode of the Considering Christianity as a Scientist podcast series. This was podcast 23. As scientific thinkers, we can evaluate our belief and through understanding develop a growing relationship with our Creator God. We can understand His history with mankind and the teaching of His Son, the Christ, to bring us closer to Him, better our relationships with ourselves, and save us from those who would destroy us. Our next episode is coming soon.